Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is Build for Tomorrow, a podcast about the things from history that shape us and how we can shape the future. I'm Jason Fox. Have you heard about participation trophies? I'm sure that you have. I mean, the participation trophy and its corrupting influence on a generation of children is a story that we have been collectively telling ourselves for decades. But just in case it is new to you, here are the basics. In youth sports today, every kid gets a trophy. Doesn't matter if they win or lose, doesn't matter if they tried hard or not, at the end of each season or whatever, they get a trophy. A trophy for participating. And this teaches kids a very harmful lesson. Because I mean, if a kid learns that winners and losers are both rewarded with a trophy, well then what incentive does anyone have to work hard? Why bother trying to win if the outcome is the same? And if that is the lesson that you learn at a young age, then as you get older, you will start applying that lesson more broadly in relationships, in your career, and so on. It is a lesson of entitlement, and I deserve this just because I showed up. So anyway, that is the story of the participation trophy. And here's how it sounds in real life. You finish last, you come home with, with a trophy. You kidding me? I mean, what's that teaching kids? It's okay to lose. And unfortunately, it's our society. It's what we're building for. And it's not just in basketball, it's in life. That is Jeff Walls, the women's basketball coach at the University of Louisville. After losing a heartbreaker of a game in 2016, he gave a post-game press conference that turned into a lecture about participation trophies. I'm trying to explain to our kids, like, hey, I'm trying to prepare you for the real world. Because when you go to get a job, there's competition. And what are you going to do to stand out? But unfortunately, we're not preparing these kids before they get to us, at least. To be ready for that. And you don't just hear about this in sports. Here is talk show host Steve Harvey, who is equally concerned. Now they got these things called participation trophies, where if your child just participate, he get a trophy for just showing up. But kids need to know that when you grow up, you ain't finna get no trophy. And here's ABC Action News of Tampa Bay, Florida, reporting on how the majority of Americans feel about participation trophies. Causing a lot of controversy across the country this week. Should all kids who participate in a sporting event get a trophy or only the kids who win? Well, a poll just recently released from Reason Roop found that 57 percent of uh, Americans feel that only winning players should get a trophy. Why is this such a hot subject? I think the answer is because participation trophies seem to explain, at such a simple level, so many problems that are associated with younger generations. For example, why are millennials entitled and why do they expect great, well-paying jobs without working hard for them? And then why do they expect constant raises and promotions? That is the stereotype. And you can hear it just casually tossed around everywhere as truth, like when the writer Simon Sinek unloaded on millennials on the show Impact Theory, which then went super viral. They were told that they were special all the time. They were told that they could have anything they want in life just because they want it. In other words, participation trophies have created a generation of entitlement. Give me my trophy 
because at least I showed up. And look, maybe you believe this and maybe you don't. Maybe you think participation trophies are a problem. Maybe you think the whole thing's overblown. But either way, I guarantee that you have accepted a key portion of this story without ever questioning it. You, me, everyone, we never thought to look closer at a key element of the story. In fact, it is the fundamental element of this story, so fundamental that if it were proven wrong, the whole thing falls apart. And crazy enough, it is the element of the story that is easiest to fact check because it is really the only part of the story based on documented evidence. You want to know what I'm talking about? Well, you can hear it from that anchor on ABC Action News, Tampa Bay. I actually think we have like a lost generation now, a generation that can't cope with losing. And uh, now let's go back to Jeff Walls of the University of Louisville. Right now, the generation of kids that are coming through. You uh, you catching this? Here it is with Steve Harvey. Mommy. We got these things called participation trophies. The part of the story that goes unquestioned is the part of the story where they say now. They say this generation. They say today. And I don't know about you, but I never thought to question this because, I mean, participation trophies seem so right now. You know, helicopter parents, generational tensions in the workplace. We're told over and over again that younger people are softer than previous generations and that we didn't see as much hardship as those generations and on and on. So, of course, participation trophies must be a product of now. But... Then I found something that blew my mind. Here is an article from the Evening Independent of Massillon, Ohio, from 1922. The headline was, Many Trophies for Tossers in State Tourney. And the story said, Trophies galore will be offered for the second annual Ohio State Invitation High School Basketball Tournament. Members of the victorious outfits will be given individual trophies. A participation trophy will also be given to each athlete playing in the series. And in 1924, the University of Minnesota created a 30-inch sterling participation trophy, which would go to the student who had the highest number of what they called participation points, whatever that is. This was described in a glowing article in the Capital Times of Madison, Wisconsin. For the first time in the history of the University of Minnesota, Intramural sports will be handled in a manner which should create more interest in athletics than ever before. And stuff like this goes on for decades. During World War II, for example, military bases, they handed out participation trophies. In 1955, the Ithaca Journal of New York reported on a new trophy being given out at the Small Fry Football Loop program. Beside the championship trophy, the Interfraternal Council is putting up a participation trophy this year. It will be awarded to the team that uses the greatest number of players per game for the season. The greatest number of players. Just round up a bunch of warm bodies and throw them on the field and you win. Anyway, massive shout out to Stefan Fatsis at Slate, who collected those examples and more into an article called We've Been Handing Out Participation Trophies for 100 Years. When I read it, my mind started racing. I felt like I was at the end of the usual suspects, you know, just information snapping together, the lies all revealing themselves. Because now, statements like this just sound so different. You finish last, you come home with a trophy. You kidding me? I mean, what's that teaching kids? It's okay to lose. And unfortunately, it's our society. It's what we're building for. And it's not just in basketball, it's in life. 
That statement from Jeff Walls contains a three-step assumption. He is saying, number one, this generation's attitudes towards life are different from yesterday's generations. And number two, the participation trophy is a new thing, which has taught this new attitude. And number three, therefore, the participation trophy is the cause of the problem. But okay, now we know something that Jeff Walls and Steve Harvey and ABC Action News of Tampa Bay and sniveling self-important self-help writer Simon Sinek either do not know or are willfully ignorant of. And that is this. The participation trophy is old. It is so old that the quote unquote greatest generation in America got participation trophies. So if they got participation trophies and if they are a model that critics of today's youth are holding up by comparison, then we have some revising of history to do here. Either yesterday's generation were just also a bunch of lazy bastards, or participation trophies are actually just fine, or both. On this episode of Build for Tomorrow, we are going to figure out what the real answer to that question is. Yes, we will talk to child psychologists and experts in youth sports, and yes, we will also talk to real live people who got participation trophies instead of just speaking for them like everyone you just heard did. But to start, we will go back in time to the beginning of youth sports, and we will discover the surprising but also totally rational origins of the participation trophy. And at the end of it all, we will have a much better understanding of what motivates us and what doesn't, and why the world just is not as simple as we'd like it to be. Ready for all that? It's like a trophy, isn't it? It's all coming up after the break. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, we are back. Like I said, on this episode of Build for Tomorrow, we are breaking down the myth of the participation trophy. People today talk about participation trophies as if they are a very new thing, and therefore that they shaped a new generation in a new and dangerous way. But that is not true. The participation trophy has been around for generations. So in our quest to understand what is going on, let us start with this question. Where did the participation trophy come from? To answer that, we actually need to ask a more fundamental question, which is, where did youth sports come from? Kids, of course, have been playing games in one form or another for all of known history, but the idea of actually organizing kids into teams and leagues, which is the kind of thing that adults do to create structure for these kids' games, well, that is actually relatively new. It happened because of a whole mix of big, complicated social changes, and I'm going to mostly summarize the work of historian David K. Wiggins here, whose studies of youth sports are cited by basically every other paper I found. So, okay, 
If you want to know the starting point for youth sports, you might as well start with the 1820s. Industrialization had come to America and people were starting to leave their agricultural roots and join the urban core. The rise of new technologies, as well as the steady arrival of immigrants, started to break America's puritanical culture, which had frowned upon a lot of sports and child's play. And this opened the door for a very different philosophy, something called muscular Christianity. Oh, yeah! It was a philosophy that had come over from England, and it tied religious and patriotic duty together with self-sacrifice and manliness and physical discipline. So, as you might imagine, the muscular Christianity guys had a lot of very lofty things to say about sports. For example, here is the writer Charles Kingsley in a book called Health and Education in 1874. Games conduce not merely to physical, but to moral health, that in the playing field, boys acquire virtues which no books can give them, not merely daring and endurance, but better still, temper, self-restraint, fairness, honor, unenvious approbation of another's success, and all that give and take of life which stand a man in such good stead when he goes forth into the world. It's so interesting to hear that because, I mean, that is still basically how we talk about sports today. We see the games as a metaphor and a constant training ground for life. In fact, we literally just heard the same ideas expressed by University of Louisville coach Jeff Walls in his rant against participation trophies. I'm trying to explain to our kids like, hey, I'm trying to prepare you for the real world. So, okay, America has a new economy and a new philosophy. Now it's about to get a new influx of casual sports fans. Adults really come first. The Industrial Revolution had increased worker productivity and pay, which meant people had more free time and money to spend. Some would spend it playing sports or enjoying sports as a spectator with, say, professional baseball, which appeared in the late 1800s. And next, here come the children. Because by 1910, there were 2 million kids under the age of 15 working in what came to be considered child slavery. Until an act to prevent interstate commerce in the products of child labor and for other purposes. That is the first line of the Keating-Owen Child Labor Act of 1916, which made child labor illegal in America. It got struck down by the Supreme Court and it would take another two decades for an actual law against child labor to stick, but it signaled the beginning of the end and child labor began to shrink. Meanwhile, America was slowly but surely making school mandatory. Massachusetts was the first state to mandate that kids went to school in 1852. Mississippi was the last in 1917. And once that happened, people had to think very differently about how they spent their time. Kids now had designated school time and free time. And what would kids do with free time? Well, parents didn't trust kids to play unsupervised, so organized sports became a good solution. This was originally driven by schools. For example, in 1903, New York's public school system created the New York City Public School Athletic League for Boys. Many other cities and states followed. And within the first few decades of the 1900s, we get the beginning of youth sports as we know it. But a few other important changes are going to happen, and they directly relate to the participation trophy. So here is where it gets really interesting. Consider the scene. You've got kids who need to be entertained and sports are offered as a solution. And that is great until, well, 
We know what happens with sports. It can get intense. Children and parents become overly competitive and start orienting their entire lives around these competitions. And by the time youth sports are really an established thing, which happens just around and after World War I, Americans have become kind of exhausted by competition. So much of the American ethos was oriented around getting people conscripted into the war effort where there are literally life and death stakes to competition, you could imagine why there would be a cultural response that says, maybe we don't need to double down on that right now. This is Sean Scott. I am a writer, um, an organizer, and author of the book Millennials and the Moments That Made Us a Cultural History of the U.S. from 1982 to the present. So people are now looking at these youth sports leagues that they had built, and they're thinking... Is this really what we want to be teaching our kids? Is all this competition and physical strain actually healthy? Many people decide that the answer is no. By the late 1920s and into the 1930s, a movement against youth sports starts taking place. Major youth sports advocates start turning against it, and schools start to cancel their sports programs. For example, in 1933, Cleveland moved to ban all competitive athletics in junior high. The school system's physical welfare director explained it to the local newspaper like this. It has been found that boys who take part in athletics on a competitive basis do not grow as much or as rapidly as boys who do not play on the school teams. This became a common theme, that sports were actually bad for you. Here is the Associated Press in 1931. College youths recklessly exerting themselves in competitive sports for the glory of their alma mater may unwittingly cause themselves great bodily harm. But of course, people are not going to just stop playing sports. One newspaper, the South Bend Tribune of Indiana, wrote in 1926 about the state banning football and described the result as, quote, like capping Mount Vesuvius or stopping the flow of Old Faithful, end quote. Which is to say, it's a mess. I mean, water would just start shooting out in every direction. And so in Indiana, the ban on football just meant that kids became obsessed with basketball. So now the question became, if kids are going to keep playing sports, how do you make it safe for them? How do you keep them entertained but remove the harmful competition and physical exhaustion? The answer to that question started to become... Well, you can hear it in this letter to the editor of a Wichita, Kansas newspaper in 1928. If it cannot be done for the pure sport of the game, there is no excuse for its existence. It's the love of the game. It's the theme that professional sports leagues still hammer home today as a way of framing the game as pure and not the gigantic business that it is. Like, here's this NBA on TNT commercial from a few years ago featuring stars like Kevin Garnett and Chris Bosh. My love for the game, I don't think can be measured, man. I love playing basketball. So, quick recap. The law says children cannot work and that they must go to school. Parents wonder what to do with kids when school is done, so schools create youth sports leagues. Then, youth sports leagues become concerning hotbeds of competition, and some schools start to shut the leagues down. But kids are not going to stop playing sports. And what happens next? Two things. First, now there is a business opportunity. Private leagues start to form, like Little League in 1939, to fill the hole left by schools that eliminated their sports programs. And then the second thing is, these organizations needed some kind of reward system, some way to emphasize the pure love of the game and not the dirty competition. So, what 
would you say is a good way to reward kids for playing, but without emphasizing winners and losers? How could you just, I don't know, reward them for participating? And if you guessed that the answer is participation trophies, you get a trophy. If you guessed something else, eh, don't worry, you still get a trophy. So here we are. Here is the participation trophy, the product of a century-long unfolding of events and massive social and economic shifts. Today, we have this romantic idea of the past where people understood the stakes in life and that there were winners and losers, and you better not be a loser. But our forefathers were the ones that were first concerned about competition, not us. Participation trophies would become a staple of sports for a very long time. Things really picked up in the 1950s, and particularly in the 60s and 70s, because the culture of that time started to have some familiar thoughts. At that time, there a lot of people and parents became overly concerned with the effects of competition on kids. That is Dan Gould, the director of the Institute for the Study of Youth Sports and a professor in student-athlete development at Michigan State. And he says that in the 50s through 70s, people became obsessed with this idea of self-esteem and self-worth. They started wondering, what can we do to build a better sense of self? And parents took that challenge very seriously. How are we going to build kids' self-worth so had given everybody a participation trophy would build their self-worth. So, okay, think of it. You've got all of these people like Jeff Walls and Steve Harvey and Simon Sinek and that anchor from ABC Action News, and they're all saying things like, the kids today and this generation and today's society. And yet these bozos have no idea that their own youth leagues had participation trophies. And maybe, I don't know, maybe they don't remember that because the trophies weren't actually that big of a deal, but we will get to that later. Let's stay with history for a moment. Now we know where the participation trophy came from. So the next thing to ask is, when and why did people turn against it? Now, I'm not sure it's possible to pinpoint exactly when that moment was, but it seems like the 1990s were the tipping point. Like I said, Stefan Fatsis at Slate did a deep dive into the newspaper archives and found appearances of participation trophies throughout history. And the first example he found of someone using the term negatively was in 1993 in the Minnesota St. Cloud. Times. The paper had quoted a local girl's softball coach who told the story about what her catcher had said. Janelle Girth told the team that we've got enough participation trophies. Now we'd like to get a place trophy. That's the goal for these girls. It was all downhill from there. Soon, newspapers around the country were running columns and commentary about how terrible the participation trophy is. By the early 2000s, some youth sports leagues were getting rid of the participation trophy entirely. So, <laughs> I mean, how about that? The participation trophy was with us for a century, but it wasn't until the 1990s, when kids born in the 1980s were entering youth sports programs, that everyone suddenly decided that these things were bad. It is as if we played a very long game of hot potato and the greatest generation and the silent generation and the baby boomers and Gen Xers all held the potato and were like, hot potato, hot potato, hot potato, hot potato. And then they passed the potato to the millennials and they said, fuck you, fuck you. And why did that happen? The answer might just be pretty boring. There's a real, I don't want to say crisis, but a concern among American businesses with respect to 
how are we going to absorb this generation and maximize, frankly, their producing capability? That is Sean Scott again, author of the book Millennials and the Moments That Made Us. And he says that prior to millennials, a lot of business management techniques had come out of the World War II era. They were aggressive and very pointed and often based on challenging people's personhood. It starts to become clear with portraits that people are doing of the millennial generation as we're in middle school and high school in the 90s that these kinds of management techniques don't really work. And that's not because millennials are soft and got too many participation trophies. It's just because their cultural context was totally different. We're not a generation that has the immediate experience of having to be constricted into the, the military. We're not a generation that was as amenable to certain milestones of adulthood, largely because of the fact that we were born into a dysfunctional economy. Now, let's be clear. Books and books and so many boring, boring books have been devoted to pointing out all the differences between different generations. And this minute-long analysis of management techniques is not going to capture it all. But I think that Sean's answer sets up an important broader point. The older generation had a system of incentives that the younger generation did not respond to for a whole host of cultural reasons. And what happens when you do things one way and someone new doesn't understand what you're doing? Well, you rarely question yourself. Instead, you just think the other party is stupid or somehow at fault. But young people are not stupid, and they're not at fault. If you're the older generation, then frankly, you're at fault because you didn't try to keep up with change. One set of incentives is not better than another. Different is not inherently better or worse. Different is just different. So, all right, now that we know the history of the participation trophy and why millennials were blamed for something that they neither invented nor was invented for them, it is time to answer the question that is at the heart of all of these complaints about participation trophies. And that is, of course, are the participation trophies bad? Are they harming kids? Are they setting the wrong example? And here is how we're going to answer this. First, we're going to do something that most people who talk about participation trophies do not do. Jeff Walls didn't do it. Steve Harvey didn't do it. ABC Action News Tampa Bay, they didn't do it. And that is, well, why don't we hear from some people who actually got participation trophies as a kid? Crazy idea, right? They're out there. They're living among us and they can speak for themselves. And then we will turn to a very accomplished child psychologist to ask, what can we learn here? And what lesson do kids really learn from a trophy that isn't about winning? All of that is coming up after the break. Okay, we're back. We have established that participation trophies are a century old and that they came out of a generation's long belief that competition is harmful. Now, of course, we think that participation trophies are the thing that's harmful. So let's see if that's true. And we're going to start, as promised, with two recipients of participation trophies. So my name is Tori Bosch. And also... My name is Hillary Cressy. And Tori and Hillary have very different experiences with participation trophies. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to hear the beginning of their stories, and then we will turn to an expert in child psychology to understand what is behind these stories. And then we will return to Tori and Hillary to see how it all turned out. And let's start with Tori. When she was a kid in the late 80s and early 90s, her parents signed her up for sports. I mean, I just at first remember coming home from t-ball or whatever with like a small shiny object when the season ended um and that seemed pretty cool i guess 
She says she didn't think much about it at first, or at least she can't remember thinking much about it. But as she got older and her parents enrolled her in soccer and t-ball and then softball and field hockey and lacrosse, she collected more and more of these small, shiny objects. Then she had a revelation. Her brother was also involved in sports, and he was also bringing home shiny objects, but his were bigger. So one day she looked closely at his trophies and read what was written on them. It said something like best hitter or best offensive player. And I realized like, oh, other people get trophies that are sort of specific to their experience. And I'm just getting like the same old thing every time. Eventually, her trophies started to feel like a failure. Like they weren't a symbol of success. They were a stand in for whatever she'd have gotten if she actually was a success. It totally felt like a mockery. You know, my grandparents would come over to visit. And of course, I would want to show them my room for whatever seven-year-old reason kids want to show their grandparents their room. And they would say, oh, wow, look at all of those trophies. You must be such a great athlete. And I would just sort of cringe because I knew that those trophies meant, you know, worse than nothing. (laughs) Okay, so Tori's story in brief. The trophies at first were like a nice but meaningless reward. And then they became a source of shame. Next, here is Hillary. So I have pretty vivid memories, actually, of getting trophies for both soccer and dance. The dance team was super competitive. They were in a state championship, and Hillary remembers it vividly. Driving down there with her mom, the jazz number her team danced to in their sparkly blue leotards, and most importantly, winning first place. First place trophy. It was just such a great feeling, and I remember all the kids on my team We were all smiling and we were just so happy. But her soccer team was less successful. No first place finishes at the state championship. No big rewards. Instead, just a participation trophy. There wasn't necessarily like a bad memory of it. It just made me feel like I was everyone else on my team. Like I I didn't feel like special. I didn't feel better. I just felt like I was belonging to something. But you know what? She put the participation trophy up in her room anyway. It didn't feel bad. Because it just like validates that you're a part of a team and that you you came, you played, you tried. So I think not having that would have been worse than actually getting one like everyone else does. So there it is. Two very different experiences. Tori's participation trophies were a source of shame, and Hillary's were received exactly as intended as a symbol that she participated. Now, what can we learn from this? Well, here's what science might say. I don't know of very many studies that have actually studied kids getting participation trophies versus not. But there's some, uh, you know, a whole line of psychological research on the effects of extrinsic rewards on intrinsic motivation. That's Dan Gould again, the director of the Institute for the Study of Youth Sport at Michigan State University. And, you know, they kind of show rewards are can kind of be a, a double-edged sword. In some cases, they can increase a kid's motivation in other cases, decrease it. And sure, incentives are a funny thing. There is a whole field of study called cognitive evaluation theory, which took hold in the 70s and explores how external consequences impact internal motivation. In other words, researchers want to know things like, does a reward increase or decrease someone's motivation to complete a task or compete in a challenge? For example, here is a famous study from 1971. Researchers get a bunch of college students and then run them through a little test. A student will be placed in a room with some puzzles, and then they're told, You have an hour to complete these puzzles. 
But halfway through, the instructor says, "Okay, it is break time. For the next eight minutes, you can keep playing with the puzzles or you can read some of these magazines we have laying around. This routine will be repeated once a day over three days. That is the setup of the experiment. Now, here is the actual experiment. The students don't know this, but some are in a control group and some are in what we'll call the money group. In the control group, all three days are exactly the same. Show up, do the puzzles for an hour, a little break in the middle, that's it. But in the money group, things are different. The students show up on the first day and have the same experience as the control group. On the second day, however, the students in the money group are told... For every puzzle you complete today, you'll be given one dollar. Which sounds like a good deal, right? But on the third day, the money group is told... Sorry, there are no more dollars. But complete the puzzles anyway? Now... The question is this, will these two groups act differently during their break when they can either play with a puzzle or read a magazine? The answer is yes. On the first day, there is no difference between the groups. On the second day, when the students in the money group are getting their dollars, they spend significantly more time during their break practicing puzzles, which makes sense because they want to practice and then make that money. And then on the third day, when the money group goes back to getting no reward, the students actually spend significantly less time practicing the puzzle during their break because now they're just thinking, eh, what's the point? Not getting any money. So in sum, when the money group was being rewarded, it tried harder than the control group. When the money group then lost its reward, it tried less hard than the control group. Conclusion, a reward can alter someone's motivation for better or for worse. Now, the fuller body of research into rewards and motivations show a pattern that helps explain what we just saw here. And basically it's this. If a recipient believes that a reward says something good about their own competence and control over a situation, then their motivation will increase. If a recipient believes that a reward shows that they actually have a lack of control over the situation, then their motivation will decrease. So that's kind of interesting. Can you apply it to participation trophies? If you took that research, it shows that giving people trophies for what they already viewed as sort of intrinsically motivating won't necessarily increase their motivation, can actually decrease it if they feel like they're getting bought. Now, to be clear, Dan isn't claiming this is true. He's just explaining how you might connect the data to the debate about participation trophies. But there is another way of looking at it. By 13, kids don't want participation trophies. This is Ken. My name is Ken Barish. I'm a clinical professor of psychology at Weill Cornell Medical College. I'm also on the faculty of the Westchester Center for the Study of Psychoanalysis and Psychotherapy and the William Allenson White Institute Child and Adolescent Psychotherapy Training Program. And Ken's point here is simple but profound because, okay, yeah, rewards can impact behavior and motivation, but what if it's a reward that nobody wants? Because when kids are old enough to understand winning and losing, the participation trophy becomes meaningless. That's one of the reasons I think that they don't have the danger that people assign to them. By 13, to be a little bit glib about this, kids know that only one team wins the Super Bowl. And only one team wins the World Series. So they don't want a trophy for participation. It doesn't mean anything to them anymore. Now, 
when kids are younger, Ken says that the participation trophy does mean something to them. But he thinks that's a good thing. You want kids to participate in team activities. You want them to be involved where they can learn important lessons about teamwork and following rules and putting in effort. When kids are young, they're kids. And we should reward them for participating. So when you give a kid a trophy for participation, you've encouraged participation, which is what you want. And let me be clear, Ken has worked with children and families for over three decades and teaches postgraduate classes in adolescent development and child psychotherapy. And in his expert opinion, this basically sums the whole thing up. Participation trophies help younger kids participate, which is good. Participation trophies are stupid to older kids, which means that they don't impact these kids' decisions. And that is the story. I personally think that the whole controversy about participation trophies has taken on more importance than it deserves. So now, with that in mind, I want to apply what we just learned about Tory and Hillary, our participation trophy recipients. Let's see how they turned out. First, there was Tori. Remember, her parents enrolled her in a lot of sports, and at first she was happy with participation trophies, but as she got older, she started comparing these trophies to her brother's trophies, which were bigger and for specific accomplishments. Tori didn't earn anything like that, and it made her feel bad. It was like a trophy to my mediocrity, not like a trophy toward some actual accomplishment. But here's something I didn't tell you about before. You know what also was happening at the same time as she started to feel sour about her participation trophies? I think that my changing thought about the trophies really dovetailed with how I started to realize that I was a really crappy athlete and that I really, really hated sports and competitive sports especially. When Tori was younger, she didn't know that. No kid knows that. The point isn't to be good or bad. The point is just to participate. But as time went on, well, her brother became a great and enthusiastic athlete and was rewarded for it with lots of cool trophies. And Tori started to figure out what she was great at. And it wasn't sports. So she came to resent the trophies. It was just reminding me that I was a terrible athlete, that my teammates probably hated me, that my father was disappointed in me. So, you know, why not just make myself suffer during practice in games rather than, you know, having to look at them when I'm at home, just trying to read a book, which is all I wanted to do with my time. But that last thing she said there is so important. She wanted to read. She didn't get trophies for reading, but she didn't care. She just wanted to focus on what she enjoyed doing and what she found rewarding and what she excelled at. All right. Next, a little more about Hillary's story. Remember, she got a big first place trophy in dance, which she loved, and then got a bunch of participation trophies for soccer, which she was fine with. It just made me feel like I was everyone else on my team. Like I, I didn't feel like special. I didn't feel better. I just felt like I was a belonging to something. Now, here's what else is worth knowing about her story. First of all, much like Tori developed a self-awareness about her strengths and weaknesses, Hillary did that too. I kind of knew my place on the team that I was like, pretty average at soccer, wasn't the best player. And I, you know, was never like recognized as one of the best people on the team. But I also was part of the team. So yeah, I just felt like I had a place on the team. 
And when Hillary looks back on this now, she sees something that shaped her, though not in the way that a participation trophy critic might think. Jeff Walls or Steve Harvey might say that these trophies made Hillary weak, like she wouldn't try hard because she was taught that winning is the same as losing. But no. Instead, Hillary says she learned that she likes working hard and likes the recognition that comes with it. I do think it affected me outside of sports because I do find the like validation and the recognition like very important, whether it's like some challenge that I'm doing or something at work or something with my friends, like getting that recognition is like important to me because it helps like fuel me to keep going and do what I want to do to accomplish my goal. So if I didn't, if no one said anything, I feel like I just wouldn't push myself and I wouldn't maximize the situation. And this is interesting to me because, you know, the participation trophy is criticized as being this thing that's really not about recognition. It's almost the opposite of recognition. It's a reward for nothing. But Hillary is framing it differently. Back in her youth soccer days, she knew that she was not a great player. And so she knew that the best thing that she could do for her team was to be part of the team, to support it, to stick things through. And the participation trophy was a recognition of that. She isn't stupid. She knows what winning looks like. She got that first place dance trophy. But she also figured out that success can take many forms, that just being a good team member is a kind of success. So two different women, two different experiences of participation trophies. And what became of them? Well, after realizing that she sucked at sports, Tori increasingly embraced what she was good at. She dove into books. She became a reader and a writer and a thinker. And today... I'm the editor of Future Tense, which is a partnership of Slate Magazine, New America, and Arizona State University, and we cover the future. And Hillary... Well, she had a competitiveness and a love of sports as a kid and retained that as she got older. And yet she also developed a clear-eyed understanding of what she's good at and what she's not, as well as what motivates her towards greatness in her own field. And today... I work in product at Nike. In short, they are both successful, and they pursued paths that were very much their own, despite having both received participation trophies. You know... The world is unpredictable. It is impossible for us to know how one thing impacts another. But we, and here I speak generally, as in all of us, the royal we, we don't like unpredictability. It makes us uncomfortable not knowing what will happen next or how to control our lives or how to shape our kids' lives. And so we often reject the premise entirely. We say, no, 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 no. The world is very predictable. A leads directly to B, which leads directly to C. I can point to this one thing over here and know exactly how it'll impact that one thing over there. And this, I think, is how we end up with debates like participation trophies. Because if the world is totally understandable, then fixing it is easy. And oh, how appealing that is, how comfortable and rewarding that is. We can identify bad things and then backtrack to their origins and then eliminate those bad seeds. Simple as that. And isn't that what Jeff Walls wants us to do? I mean, what's that teaching kids? It's okay to lose. And unfortunately, it's our society. It's what we're building for. And it's not just in basketball, it's in life. But what if that's not true? I mean, actually, let me rephrase that. It 
isn't true. I am flat out telling you it isn't true. The real truth is, to paraphrase Walt Whitman, we contain multitudes. External things influence us, but we also influence external things. One person's insulting participation trophy is another person's satisfying reward. In the case of Tory and Hillary, I would argue that we're hearing the stories of two very different women who grew up, learned about themselves, and then their self-understandings shaped how they felt about the trophy. The participation trophy didn't singularly shape them. A world of things shaped them and they also shaped themselves and that is the reality of life and then a little tiny part of that was reflected off the participation trophy's tiny shiny surface what is the true lesson of the participation trophy it is this winning happens in many ways and it always has and it always will and if you think that a stupid little trophy has anything to do with any of this well then i guess i will give you a participation trophy for trying but it doesn't mean much And that's our episode. Here's a fun question. Who would win a trophy for the most dramatic opposition to participation trophies? I have a strong contender, and I will share it right after I tell you this. If you like this podcast, then please subscribe and tell a friend and sign up for my newsletter, which is all about how to find opportunity and change. You can get it by going to jasonpfeiffer.com. If you'd like to get in touch, just follow me on Twitter or Instagram. I am at Hey Pfeiffer, H-E-Y-F-E-I-F-E-R. DM me. I promise I will reply. This episode was written by me, Jason Pfeiffer, and reported by Britta Lochting and me. Sound editing by Alec Bayliss. Our theme music is by Casper Babypants. Learn more at babypantsmusic.com. The actors you heard in this episode were Gia Mora. You can find her at giamora.com. And Brent Rose. You can find him at brentrose.com. Thanks to everyone you heard in this episode. And another shout out to Steph and Fats is at Slate for the article that inspired this episode. I also learned a lot from an article in The Atlantic called When Did Competitive Sports Take Over American Childhood by Hillary Levy Friedman. This show is supported in part by the Charles Koch Institute. The Charles Koch Institute believes that advances in technology have transformed society for the better and is looking to support scholars, policy experts, and other projects and creators who focus on embracing innovation, creating a society that fosters innovation, and encouraging people to engineer the next great idea. If that is you, then get in touch with them. Proposals for projects in law, economics, history, political science, and philosophy are encouraged. To learn more about their partnership criteria, visit CKI. That again is cki.org. All right. Now, as promised, here is the story of someone who really went the extra mile in opposing participation trophies. Back in 2015, Pittsburgh Steelers linebacker James Harrison came home one day and discovered that his little boys, who were five and seven years old then, had been given participation trophies. And he and his wife agreed these trophies would have to be given back. So then James goes and talks to his sons. So I pull him in, sit down, talk to him, explain to him I'm proud, you know, for the effort that they gave. But uh, these trophies are going back until you, uh, you earn real trophies. That is James Harrison when he went on, wouldn't you know it, the Steve Harvey show. So anyway, then off went the trophies. Take them back to the coach's house, knock on the door, and uh, nobody answers, so I just leave them on the porch. Then James posted about it on Instagram, where it went viral. So what do we think? Is this the most dramatic response to a participation trophy? Does James get the trophy, or does he just get a participation trophy? Well, I don't know. I'll leave it to you to decide. That is it for this episode. Thanks for listening. I am Jason Pfeiffer. Let's keep building for tomorrow.